You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Today, I'm joined by Heidi Larson, Professor of Anthropology, Risk and Decision Sciences, and Director of the Vaccine Confidence Project at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and Clinical Professor of Health Metrics and Sciences at the University of Washington. Welcome, Heidi. Thanks so much, Steve. Well, we're here to talk about your new book. Title is Stuck, How Vaccine Rumors Start and Why They Don't Go Away. It was just issued recently, Oxford University Press, and we're here to talk about the book. The timing for this book is is very propitious. We'll talk a bit about that. It's very clear that this builds very systematically on all of the knowledge and experience that you've accumulated over the 11 years of the Vaccine Confidence Project, which you initiated back in 2009 and have led and pioneered since then in terms of the case studies, the research methodologies, mapping around the world, vaccine emotions and beliefs. It's really a remarkable piece of work that brings all of that period in your life together in a dramatic way. And I'm most impressed at how you've woven together history, culture, technology, psychology, and political science. I guess that's what anthropologists in this modern era do. Um, I also like the title very much, Stuck, which we'll ask you in a moment to unpack the multiple meanings that you ascribe to that. There's a lot of very lively language, medical populists, swarms, sheeples. We'll talk about some of that. And you organize the book around several core themes, rumors, risk, emotional contagion, power of belief, digital wildfires. These these are all interwoven in, in their own way with one another, but it's a, it's a remarkable book and, and I encourage everyone to read that and we're going to talk about it. So tell us, Heidi, give us the basics, like why did you write this and what are the core messages you're trying to convey and to what audience? What is the readership that you're trying to reach? It's not a single readership. What are the core messages you're trying to deliver at this particularly poignant moment in time when we are in the midst of indeed a pandemic, the first true pandemic of this type in 102 years. So thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations. And over to you to sort of walk us through what the basics are in this. Thanks, Steve. Yes, when I looked at the book, when it finally arrived in the mail, I thought, wow, it's so small and so much work. (laughs) Anyway, a lot is packed behind each page. And I think the, you know, my working title for this book was going to be Missing the Point. And I was prompted to write this book by my experiences around the polio vaccination boycott in northern Nigeria in 2003 to 2004 when I saw that there's all the information in the world was not going to turn around a statewide boycott of a vaccine that was driven by distrust. It was distrust that the West was the motives of the West to be funding and delivering these vaccines door to door in a post 9-11 world couldn't be trusted. 
It was about distrust of central government in Nigeria. It was about the North losing to the South in a in a presidential campaign. There was no adverse event. There was no specific safety issue. It was really distrust and rumor. And I thought, wow, you know, this is something to think about. And the wow factor really hit me when we saw that this meant that 20 countries, as far as Indonesia, were infected with the Nigerian strain of the polio virus, costing the global polio eradication program over $500 million to reset the progress that was lost, all because of a rumor. And it really struck me that we were, as an immunization and public health community, missing the point. We kept trying to fix it with messaging when these were deep-seated emotions, perceptions, trust and distrust relationships, and that we really, really needed to understand better the why behind people's hesitation and refusal. So that really prompted me to, frankly, leave my job at UNICEF after five years of leading the communication and strategy to introduce new vaccines and launch Gavi, the Global Alliance of Vaccines and Immunization, um, and then to face, uh, to see these phenomena happening. And polio and, and the Nigerian boycott got quite a bit of media attention, but there wasn't media attention for the multiple other smaller, similar episodes happening in different corners of the world that in my role in UNICEF and as an anthropologist, I was sent out to figure out why people didn't want the good things that UNICEF was delivering. So that's what inspired the book. Uh, as I said, I, it was my working title was Missing the Point until about nine months before the book uh, moved towards the press. In discussions with the editors and others, there was a sense that many things could be missing the point and that can be a theme in it, but we needed a title that was a bit punchier. And, and actually stuck hit me as one of the anecdotes in the book said, um, partly it came up as one of the options in discussions with the editors, but then I really... I thought this is this is so the right word, not just because of the play with words of stuck and injections, but stuck in the conversation and stuck. And I talk about this in the book, like stuck in traffic when, you know, you're there and you have your frustrations and emotions and feelings and other people are focused on the larger traffic and counting and direction. And yeah, the, the tension between individual experiences and the public assessment of it and the scientific assessment of the situation. So Heidi is the, is one of the core messages that the world of public health, the scientific public health medical community is missing the point, i.e. they they're stuck. They have certain habits and rituals of trying to communicate to a public around the value of vaccines but they're failing and they're not seeing the larger picture and the larger picture of what needs to be done in order to, in order to bring about greater confidence and faith in the value of vaccines. Is that your core message? One of your core messages? It's one of my messages, but um, as I say in the book, there's no single culprit in this wave of dissent. I think everybody could, do things a bit differently. And I, I risking looking, uh, you know, watering it down, which I don't at all feel that way, but trying to, and I'm not just trying to be the peacemaker here, but I do think 
that we need to have more empathy for the other side of sides of the coin. You know, I think I think that the public needs a bit needs to be a bit more forgiving of the science and not as as angry. But the scientists in the medical community are not helping themselves or the other by um, resting on our laurels of how well we've done with vaccination. The system has not helped either side by having so much pressure on it and the amount of time for for patient uh, provider interactions are getting shorter and shorter. There's much more stress on systems. People don't have time. I mean, healthcare professionals are very frustrated by the lack of time they have. They're not used to being asked so many questions. And the public's very frustrated by feeling their questions are never answered or they're judged for even having them. So I think there's system pressures and there's individuals. So it's kind of a, a call to say, you know, let's step back while not dropping everything, but step back and figure out how can we change the conversation because we are stuck. Yes. And you're one of, it seems that one of your most fundamental messages here is we need to acknowledge the level of distrust in the many factors that account for that and the way that the ground has shifted. You make this point over and over again in the book that we're in this paradoxical situation where we're living with a very impressive array of effect, safe and effective vaccines, yet we're living with a, a world in, that feels more independent and autonomous and d- doesn't simply follow in instructions and is much more doubtful and skeptical around those tools. And how do you reconcile that paradox? Yeah, it's, it is a paradox. And I do think that we're also in the midst of a, a very dramatic technology revolution. I mean, we've been through a number of them historically from telegraph to telegram to (laughs) the telephone, the TV. I mean, with each new communication technology in particular, there have been anxieties and frustrations and things, you know, expectations that something could be used for good, but also could be abused. We've had the same thing with the whole social media landscape. This has had a profound impact, not just on the spread and and dramatic spread of information and misinformation, but the way these new tools are used for for groups to self-organize. It's changed workplace dynamics. It's changed workflow. It's replaced jobs. It's globalized and, and also created a backlash to globalization. So This isn't, I mean, I think that's another reason I was calling it missing the point for a while, because this is about so many things that surround the vaccine enterprise. And and I think the the challenge is that we've taken a lot for granted in the whole vaccine space and immunization, you know, with this amazing new health technology that's probably saved more lives than many other health interventions, although, you know, they all do well, but this has had a, a kind of profound impact on child and, and life survival. And yet it needs to change as good as it, as it is, if it doesn't self-correct, if it doesn't reset, like many things we need to do in the context of COVID now, we're going to lose the value of this fantastic health technology. So you're seeing this phenomenon uh, accelerate of vaccine refusal and hesitancy as a global phenomenon. It has, it's fed from many sources. The, the digital revolution beginning in the late 90s has had a globalizing and propellant force on this. Many other factors that have come into this in terms of 
nationalism, populist nationalism, the rise of a more independent set of individuals making decisions, medical decisions, public health decisions on the basis of what they of what they themselves arrive at. And these new communities that have that have formed these swarms that you talk about movements that have formed in this period. You're sort of calling our attention to that. What are the priority audiences that you want to read this book? And what you've talked about, the messages of need to be more empathy. There needs to be a wake-up call, understanding of the multiple root causes of distrust and suspicion. Who are you trying to reach and, and move I've purposely asked for this, and it was also agreed uh, with the publisher that this should be in the popular science section because I wanted it to be accessible, not just for the public health and medical science community, but that accessible to the public, accessible to politicians and policymakers, that it's basically, I know the publics are not general publics in any sense of the word, but for the broader public. I think that none of the different sides really, uh, they're all, frankly, paying attention to their own views, not to water it down again. But it's really, I think there's something in there for different sides to see. The health community is not, some of the, the perceptions by the public are not intended by the medical and scientific community. It's just kind of the way they've been trained, the way they interact, and some are much more empathetic than others. So it's, as an anthropologist, as much as we look for patterns, uh, and I'm a, I would definitely say I'm a, a more of an atypical anthropologist in the multidisciplinarity approach, but you can't really generalize here, but you know, I, I risk when I say that the medical community needs a bit more empathy, I don't say that without recognizing there are individuals who are really trying and others who are not purposely being unempathetic. It's just wasn't, hasn't been part of the culture. I think if the public sees that they're also frustrated and vice versa, that the public is frustrated not to be contrarian with their questions, but they have some genuine questions. So it's a long answer to your short question, but it's a bit of the different sides. Let's bring this into focus with a discussion around Wakefield, Andrew Wakefield. And I think his story brings in the major elements that you build your book around. Rumors, risk, emotional contagion, power of beliefs, digital wildfires. Wakefield comes forward 22 years ago with his famous uh, article published in Lancet, later retracted. He has a very powerful set of messages that he's carried. Vaccines cause autism. Parents know best. He is stripped of his medical license. He, he's discredited. He migrates to the United States. And he's become a medical populist hero. He is a prophet of sorts. He's, his support is now globalized. He's benefited enormously from some of these trends that you've talked about, the digital media, social media revolution, the rise of populist nationalism, the rise of a global parental movement. Tell us, okay, what do we make of this? This is the, the, the Wakefield recurs in your book at several points in your accounts of how he has transcended these setbacks and become a hero and led this global movement. It's a remarkable story. What are we to make of this? 
Well, as you say, he kind of, his journey kind of epitomizes, but has really capitalized on all the different domains. I think if his paper had, which had basically, it was a small study with 12 children that, as you said, has since been debunked and and withdrawn from the Lancet. Had it been published 10 years earlier, I think many people wouldn't even know about it. It came at a time that publics were, parents were increasingly anxious about the phenomena of autism, which seemed to be more and more happening more and more among children. Some of that was because in uh, the DSM-3, in the, in the characterization of, of autism, there, there was a recognition, there was a spectrum, so more children were being diagnosed with it, but there was, there is also, has also been an increasing trend. So they were seeking an answer. So his paper, and very simple, short, a vaccine can cause autism, even though he doesn't say that explicitly in his paper, he talks about some of the syndromes related to it, but that's basically the meme that was launched with that paper, gave eager publics an answer. And that's one of the things I talk about in the rumor chapter, that what gives rumors traction is when there is an appetite for whatever the message they're giving. If there's no appetite, you know, you can have the truest rumor and it doesn't go anywhere because people aren't interested. Um, But in this case, it was a huge appetite. He also got lucky, as it were, by uh, having that, by that paper coincidentally being published on the eve of when Google opened their doors in 1998 followed by, in 2006, Facebook, Twitter, I mean, and then this whole portfolio of social media platforms that, you know, have been unfolding by the day in different countries and different ways. So there was this tremendous platform for the, the, the sharing and discussion and the access to this paper and to some of the beliefs. And then you have Wakefield himself. Some scientists who would have had the critique that he had on his paper would have said, you know, science is about making hypotheses, is about uh, trialing and constantly learning. I appreciate your point, and he would move on. That wasn't Wakefield. He already at the press conference spoke out of line in the sense of he made statements that were not in the paper, like take a monovalent measles vaccine, don't take it a combination MMR vaccine. That'll that'll solve this problem. And that was not in the paper, but that started to get traction. And it also created tremendous anxiety among the public. And in the UK, the uptake of the MMR vaccine And it was a slow decline, actually, over five years. The lowest was uh, five years after 1998, um, which I think these days might have dropped quicker in the current environment. This is quite possible. It's quite possible to sort of draw some comparisons between what happened in Nigeria in 03 and 04, and 20 countries suddenly facing polio, $500 million, several years to roll this back. We're 22 years into the Wakefield phenomenon. It took 15 years to recover immunization rates among children in many countries. Absolutely. And it's what's what's happened also is that in his being rejected and and basically martyrized, uh, he's become a martyr to the public because he was willing to speak out against his medical colleagues and scientific mm-hmm. colleagues. And right. the fact that he was kicked out of the establishment because he did that to the public and to the parents who feel like they're also 
um, not being listened to, he's become one of them. And he plays to that, absolutely plays to that. I'm like one of you, those, those guys in white coats. He's actually said those, you know, those people in white coats. He was one of them. And he's also been very entrepreneurial in his expanding his mantra to not just be about vaccines cause autism, but about, you know, parents have choice uh, on the whole mandate issue, parents know best, but also appealing to uh, alternatives like the whole naturopathy, homeopathy movement. He's been in a lot of these in Poland, 20,000 person audience, because they can fill in with an option when you don't take that vaccine, come to us, we've got another solution. He's also been very entrepreneurial politically. I mean, they affiliation with RFK Jr., Robert Kennedy Jr., his flirtation with the Trump with Trump and his his administration. I was struck by your statement that this phenomenon is not correctable. In other words, it's permanent. It's here. We've got to deal with it in some fashion. I'm not sure what that means in terms of dealing with it, but it's your point that this isn't a, a transitory phenomenon is a very powerful one. And it can't be corrected in the sense of somebody issuing a statement saying he's wrong. Yeah, I, because there was there were multiple statements, letters to the editor, all kinds of studies, many studies, uh, none of them coming up with the same conclusion that he did. All of them basically in a very, you know, deep de-linking vaccines. Uh, in fact, there was one 600,000 plus person study in Denmark that actually found that in a trial comparing um, the rates of autism among children vaccinated and not vaccinated. Some of the girls who were vaccinated actually had less autism than the ones who weren't. So, I mean, there's been plenty of scientific evidence. The IOM did a, um, Institute of Medicine did a major report. That has not changed this. I mean, it has to a certain audience, but it has been my con one of my continuing frustrations with so much focus these days on debunking misinformation. That's like clipping the head off a weed. It's going to keep growing back. We're not, uh, this is, as I've said in uh, some of my talks, we don't have a misinformation problem. We have a relationship problem. And it's about trust dynamics. It's about the way we interact. I'm not, I shouldn't say we don't have a misinformation problem. Um, we do have a misinformation problem, but it is one piece. It's a symptom, not a cause. And correct it as an interim measure, but that's not going to fix this. Let's shift a little bit. I mean, you wrote 95% of this book before the coronavirus was identified December 31st last year and before the pandemic began unfolding. You had a chance to write a some an additional prologue in May, but all of what you're thinking was, you know, and it was before we entered the current phase and suddenly the issues that are, that were front and center for you are now front and center for the world as this pandemic is unfolding. We're particularly concerned with the national security implications of vaccine refusal hesitancy. We have a joint project, in fact, with you and the London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine high-level panel on vaccine confidence and social media disinformation campaigns. Does not COVID-19 only enhance the argument that all of these matters that you're talking about are actually national security issues in your view? 
They're absolutely security issues. This is about public cooperation with authority. In cases of security, you need cooperation. This is anti-cooperation. I mean, I shouldn't say that unilaterally because there have been bright lights in some of the more local volunteerism and and some of the efforts. And certainly the farther you get away from central government in, in, in many countries, actually, the more, you know, local communities have, have tried to weigh in. I think everybody's patience is, is wearing thin and also the economy is wearing thin in the meanwhile. But from a security perspective, it's about the trust relations also. I mean, in a security situation, um, security situations heighten uncertainty. Uh, they exacerbate trust relationships, distrust. They can, I mean, you can use opportunities like COVID to build trust by by reaching out and engaging. But this this window, this vaccine situation to me is is really just a, a window on a broader broader issues of society. And we we're gonna need the World Economic Forum for this year's Davos, um, which has now been postponed, is called uh, their theme is the Great Reset. I think it's a great theme topic because in a way that's what this book is calling for, a great reset. And in a way, COVID uh, even though when, as you said, 95, the, the book was virtually finished. And my last chapter was talking about uh, the world not being ready for the next big one. So I, as it moved from the editor's desks into the production, we had to kind of rein it back. And I didn't, I come back to the big one. Yeah, here. we're here. And it was, it was actually for me, I was, as I write in the book, I was actually quite glad I had written pretty much all of the core text before COVID because because it was about a world pre-COVID. But at the same time, it was so relevant to the situation in COVID that each chapter, my prologue, you know, talks about how it's it's relevant. But I, I think COVID, while exacerbating all of these issues, all of these chapter topics and emotional contagion and cooperation. Uh, and digital wildfires, as I talk about. At the same time, as I mentioned, COVID is an opportunity to rebuild trust because it will be remembered. But it's also a time to, uh, we are not going to go back to what we were before. And that's not a, not fully a bad thing. <laughs> and I think if we look, but people, if if things are just theoretical, or you know, in big letters, it's harder to make it tangible. What what the vaccine story does is make our bigger societal issues tangible. And if we can get the vaccine story right, we're going to come a long way in all the underlying reasons we get it right. I mean, I agree with you, and and the a central concern of our joint project is in fact unteasing the security complications around this phenomenon. And given what's at stake today globally in trying to deal with the health implications, the economic catastrophe that's been the knock-on effect and the social destabilizing impacts that we see, there's just a huge amount at stake. And the vaccines, we we are now moving into towards that phase. I think much of the preoccupation of the last six or eight months has been around the response, around the response and the need for social solidarity and lockdowns and the like. And that's been highly problematic and has exposed distrust. And I think it's fair to say, certainly here in the United States, distrust has risen 
as in over the course of the last nine months. A quarter to a third of Americans are saying they won't take the vaccine when it becomes available. Over 60% saying they don't trust the president's statements on any matters pertaining to the COVID response, including vaccines. We are under a period of great stress, right, in terms of disease and mortality and risk and death, economic consequences, social instability. It's a tough place. And I also, we're going to, as vaccines become available, the vaccines are going to become so important as a tool for getting us out from underneath this profound burden. What do you think is likely to be the posture and the strategy of governments in communicating to their citizens? Are they going to follow the advice you're proffering around engagement, sensitivity, patience, humility, or is there going to be a lot less patience and a lot more, look, we've got a huge problem in front of us and let's move on. And we can fight some of these other fights later, but we got to, we got to get our society and our economy back on its feet. What do you think? I mean, I'm, I tend to be more on the skeptical side of this, that I think that many of the lessons you're talking about, people taking on board may not happen, may not be taken on board by a leadership that's in a bit of a panic, that's certainly here in the United States has failed egregiously in the first phase of the response. And we have a public that's just so anxious to get out of this. And I'm not sure how that's going to, how much patience there's going to be with a broad debate about vaccines. What do you, what do you make of that? Well, you have a, you have a point. I mean, I think the temperament right now, the, the weather report on public sentiment doesn't line up with some of my recommendations on having more empathy and being patient because people are not feeling that way right now. I'm not really sure how to answer your question in, in a simple way. There is a lot of anger. There is a lot of frustration. On the other hand, sometimes you can channel a lot of that emotion in in positive ways in ways that people get it people have become so fed up that they want change of some sort and if it can be channeled in a way that's that's kind of a productive change even if you don't label it as that i think there's this is a huge opportunity for us on the one hand people are expressing a lot of emotion and if we can use this energy this emotional energy and this frustration with the way things are to change things in a way that is is productive i think there's there's hope for that it's it's not an easy task but i do think um we need to do that sooner rather than later because you know these times people you have you have personal but you also have community and population level moods and you have a lot of emotion and frustration but then when you know then it can move to anger and then it can move to other stages and it's really important that we embrace it while people are still frustrated but want want change before they get into an anger or angry or bitter mode which is going to be harder to work with we haven't yet seen what the strategy of communications and engagement is going to be here in the United States. I mean, the administration's reportedly preparing a plan, $150 million plan, um, but we haven't seen that yet. And um, my guess is there's going to be actions as, as, as we move towards vaccine availability 
and trying to define what the priorities are going to be, which populations will be served first, and in what timeline and through what channels. There's going to be issues of equity and division and efficiency and all of those things that are going to come forward. And the demands on the communications are going to be just huge. And I think we will we will be in this phase, unlike anything we've ever seen in terms of you know, the world trying to prepare for two doses for 7 billion people on multiple levels. So we're in for, you know, multi-year set of experiences where these issues that you've put forward around distrust and skepticism and people not really believing that their interest, that authorities are keeping their personal interests or that they're not listening or putting their, their, their personal interests first and foremost. You're very careful in arguing, and we've talked about this, for understanding and engagement with all sides to these arguments. And I think that's among the most unusual and refreshing messages in your book. And we've talked about why that's needed and what are the advantages. But I want to turn for a moment. I mean, there is a darker, nastier side to the anti-vaccine sentiment. And that is, we know that there are actors out there who are not necessarily simply posing questions and wanting to be respected and treated with dignity and understanding and patience and listened to. These are actors who are actively out to destabilize, to spread disinformation, to disrupt services, to use this opportunity in order to not just disrupt, but to intimidate and foster fear and division. And we've seen this here in Washington in our engagement with Congress, our engagement with the executive agencies, they don't want to become targets of this. And so they pull their punches, they keep their messaging, they keep their dialogues in private channels and the like. How do we deal with that reality? Because, you know, the more there is a, I mean, I just don't know. I don't know what the strategy is, but when we get back to, there's a national security dimension to this, these folks have the ability to disrupt what needs to happen in order to restabilize our society and our economy and how are we going to deal with it? What are your thoughts on that? You're absolutely right. And there are some seriously bad actors as they've been termed and the motives are not, they're not even against vaccine. They're they're really aiming to destabilize, to polarize. But the problem is, I think from a, from a, what can we do about it point is that we're giving them by backing off, we're giving more and more and more space to it by saying, I'm not going there. They're, you know, they're too aggressive. We're not building resilience for people to say, wait a minute, enough is enough. There are some groups, some parent groups, some younger, some children of parents against vaccines who are saying, whoa, wait a minute, you didn't give me something that I think I should have. So I think we need to really, while looking at any of the, I mean, making some efforts to try to, where possible, you know, interrupt the spread of some of what are quite harmful messages from some of these groups to either looking at ways that they are causing harm and and either making legal cases for that or you know, cutting back on the amplification through through some of the social media channels. But at the end of the day, if we're not filling that space with alternative narratives, rather than sticking to the vaccines are good mantra, 
and and getting with the program and building trust with those who there's a huge number of people in the middle who have questions who have doubts who and they're so vulnerable to the aggressive and very appealing to some messages of these you know disruptive actors negatively disruptive actors and we're not there with the same we meaning the public health and vaccine community um, not engaging with publics in the way that we should that would build kind of a resilience and we need to make room for debate we have become so polarized that either you're in or you're out and it leaves an 80 to 90% of the people in the middle saying, wait a minute, it's not that straightforward. It's not just six basic vaccines and six diseases that we know could kill our children. You're talking about way more vaccines. You're talking about combinations of vaccines. You're talking about things that I wanna know more. And you're saying, you know, take it, it's good for you. Let's have a discussion. Maybe we don't need all these vaccines, some of them are saying, but let's have a discussion about it. But there's no, somehow, even if it can't be across all domains, and there are there is a line where the science is the science and you can't bend the situation, but there are aspects where there is should be more room for conversation. And by backing off, and I'm not saying we have to have a confrontational, I mean, I think there, there is a need for some confrontation with and serious intervention on at the source of this these extreme negative disruptors. But we also could do a lot more in building a confidence, uh, a dialogue, a room, a space for engagement and um, in, indigenously motivated parent and community groups who say, I have a right to vaccines. I want a vaccine and I know why I want them. So we ask each of our guests to close by telling us what gives you hope and confidence and strength that in the, that we can make progress. And in this particular area, you know, you've You've mapped out for us a very gnarly and expansive problem that's become bigger and bigger and more complicated. And you've done a brilliant job of demonstrating, yes, there's no single culprit. There are multiple factors that enter this. And the solutions are seem somewhat elusive. And we're at a moment in time when the pandemic and the arrival of vaccine, the globalized nature of the pandemic, the scale of the demands, the centrality of vaccines to all of this, the, it, the, what's at stake is just huge here. What gives you hope and strength as you look ahead? What gives me hope and strength is some of the younger generation, some of the children of some of these questioning and refusing parents who have, uh, like Ethan Lindenberger, other, others who have stood up and said, wait a minute, you know, what I'm learning in school and what I feel like I need and have a right to is different from what my mother thinks. And I need to do something about this and I'm teaming up with my peers so we can create a different movement. I also think that the emerging generation of digitally fluent younger cohort who will become doctors and health authorities and whatever will have much more ease at moving in to some of the social media places and spaces where the conversations are happening in ways that the current 
medical and scientific community and health authorities are much more anxious about going into beyond SMS messages to for appointment reminders or, you know, to participants in trials. It's I understand some of the hesitation. It is an emotional space. It does make you kind of vulnerable to attack. But on the other hand, if we're not there and not engaging, you know, we're losing we're losing our public. Um, and I think that with the digital transition generationally, that will become a bit more possible. Already, it's changing. I think I see some real innovation among some of the the youngest doctors coming in who are are really getting quite fluent and creative with some of the things they're doing. Thank you. And congratulations on the book. It's a wonderful, rich, very provocative work. And we're delighted to be able to talk with you today about it and to host a session tomorrow to engage with some of the experts around this. And we wish you the best of luck. You'll be I believe having an opportunity at many different other settings in the United States soon to also talk about this. As I understand you were saying, you'd be at, on the West Coast at Stanford, at Facebook, you'll be out at the World Economic Forum. I wish you the best on all of those too. Thanks so much. 